Thank you so much. Okay, so here's the great news to start off with, that support for gender equality is rising right across the world. But here's one thing I find quite curious and fascinating. The progress is growing fastest and most extensively in cities. And I want to understand why. What is about these specific places that seems to be catalyzing social change? Because at the moment, we really don't know because there's very little subnational analysis, subnational comparative work of what's driving change over time. And so what I want to do is introduce these two case studies from Zambia and Cambodia and use that to rethink and question what we know about direct change over time. So let me begin with some of our sort of big theories and then I'll go into the empirical work and we'll have a chat after. And I'll be so interested to hear other people's reflections based on their experiences. So I think gender scholars tend to either look at the micro people's individual level characteristics. For example, is an employed woman more likely to stand for office, for example? But that can neglect the social norms, which may be important in shaping her aspirations and opportunities. Or alternatively, they look at the macro level context. For example, through cross-country regressions, is a country with a high average level of female employment more likely to have more women in office? But I find that troubling because no one actually sees or, or lives amid a national average. A national average only exists on a graph. So why would we think that it would be causally influential? Actually, what shapes our aspirations, our beliefs, our expectations, how we think we'll be treated and what's possible for us, is growing up and observing our specific locales, the village or the city or the town that you're in now. And that may be very different from the national average. Just in the USA, for example, rural gender attitudes are about 20 years behind urban ones, right? No one's actually living in that national average. So to understand what really drives change, we need to look at these specific places. And I think that if you start paying attention to subnational analysis, you may come to question some of our big theories of what drives change over time. So let's say there are four big theories. Um, Time-saving devices, uh, rising opportunity costs, or paid work as empowering, or exposure to role models. Each of these, to me, seems a little bit, not a full explanation. So, for example, many people say that female employment in the USA has boomed with the introduction of time-saving devices, that is, washing machine, white goods, ready meals, the pill, contraceptives, that reduces women's burden of care work and frees up their time, enabling them to go out into the labor force. And I think that's plausible. But if we take a step back, comparatively, look, fertility has massively fallen in the Middle East and South Asia. And even though there are lower time constraints, women's labor force participation remains low. So it's like there are additional constraints. It's not like once women have less to do, then families automatically let them do whatever they like in the wider world. There seems more to it. And conversely, in sub-Saharan Africa, where there's limited electrification, high fertility, where women bear a huge burden of care work, they're still incredibly active in horticulture, right? So even though they have this huge care burden, they just work incredibly long days with very little sleep. So to me, I'm not entirely persuaded by these time-saving devices. 
Okay, second one, economic opportunities. So some people say that with sustained economic growth, with rising demand for women workers in manufacturing, in services, in tourism, with the growth of the state, demand for nurses, teachers, then in response to those new economic opportunities, families come to see women's work as advantageous, and then social norms change. But again, I'm not entirely persuaded by that rational choice model of human behavior, because there are many societies which privilege and prioritize other things besides economic rewards, such as collective honor, right? And the, the controlling women's sexuality and reproductive in order to ensure the family's good name. So there are the things that people prioritize besides economic goods. Another argument is that paid work itself is catalytic. So for example, by having her own income, a woman has economic autonomy. She can renegotiate patriarchal terms. She can push back and resist and say no. And, and that money gives her the resources, the income to tiptoe into new terrains in politics, for example. However, and I think there's some plausibility to that. However, it's not a full explanation because we know, say for example, here in England, people might refer to the farmer, and the farmer's wife, as if she makes no independent contribution to household finances, as if she's just wifing around, when in fact she may be an important contributor. Well, there's a really great study, a World Bank study by Boudet et al in 2014, and they show that across middle and low income countries, rural women's work is much less likely to be recognized and appreciated and acknowledged. It may not even be seen as work. So what we need to grapple with, what we really need to understand is people's gender stereotypes, their assumptions about what men and women can do or what's appropriate for different genders. And here I'm very taken by some of the work on exposure to role models. So the idea that by seeing female economists, by seeing female plumbers, electricians, manufacturers, business owners, then people come to recognize women can do it. Then people come to recruit women, employ women, vote for women, educate their daughters, because now they see that women can do it. Yes, yes, lots of nice work on that. But, but there's a conundrum. Because if people are resistant or reluctant to employ women because of their gender stereotypes, then those gender stereotypes can prevent exposure to role models in the first place. So we're trapped. We're trapped in a chicken and egg problem, a negative feedback loop in which people don't see these role models, so they don't vote for them, so they don't see them. How do you get out of that trap? Well, that's precisely what's happened in Zambia and Cambodia. So let's start with those case studies. Um, so let's start with Zambia. Zambia, at the turn of independence, was actually a middle-income country relatively prosperous because copper prices were high and men could work in the mines and they gained status as breadwinners, wearing their blue overalls and their hard hats. There were factories, there was employment. And because of men's income, they could look after their families single-handedly. They could provide and gain status. So many men actually resisted women's work, even though there were a few role models, a few women teachers, whatever, they didn't catalyze wider, a, a, a broader feedback loop, a positive feedback loop, because very few families saw that as advantageous. Men wanted to gain status as breadwinners. But then what happened over the 1970s and 1980s is worsening economic security. 
with structural adjustment policies, trade liberalization, um, a huge cutbacks to state, a huge cutbacks to input uh, ISI, factories closed down, men lost their jobs and their incomes plummeted. And also with HIV AIDS, by 1999, the life expectancy was 39. So in that context of worsening economic security, families increasingly saw it as advantageous for women to go out into the labor force. There was a shift in opportunity costs. And it was not just trading in the market, but actually people increasingly supported women training as electricians, as engineers, as going into the mines, driving the big dump trucks, because there was money in that, right? So we saw this positive feedback loop of labor force participation. Oh, there's a chat. Is there a problem with my audio? Can everyone hear me? Yes. Uh, no, Alice, uh, there might be a little bit of a bandwidth, so maybe other people besides you could to disconnect that video uh, so that we can liberate a bit more of the bandwidth for you. Oh, right. I'm sorry. No, no, it's, it's not your fault. But... I can resume? No, no, I'm, I, I personally could hear you, but there, there, there's a couple of people who couldn't. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, I'm so sorry. Okay. Right. Trade of thought. Okay. So, right, right, right. So what we saw is as opportunity costs change, people became people came to see women's work as advantageous. Right? And it was, and then so you have first had this change in opportunity costs, and then you have this behavioral change. And through seeing, through seeing women all, all these different domains, what you now hear in the copper belt is which means women can do what men can do. And that discourse has emerged and it is heard in, in houses, in garages, in markets, in schools, in offices, because it reflects what people have observed. It's not like some donor gender coming in. It reflects people's observations. But this process has been slow and incremental. If you read any qualitative ethnographic work of Zambia in the 1990s, it would just reflect the wider literature on structural adjustment, that women are doing more with no increase in rights or rewards or recognition. So it's not just a fact of women having their own incomes or seeing other women earning, but actually a really crucial process of association. For example, people coming together in the market and other public spaces because of the heterogeneity, the diversity, the propinquity of cities that enables people to see a woman repairing electricals that enables people to see smartly dressed women going to offices and people chat about this and talk about this and come to rethink their assumptions so for example when i was sitting in the market i might hear people talking about gender-based violence and men who used to beat their wives came to think that maybe this wasn't acceptable. Maybe it wasn't okay, so they stopped doing it. And by hearing other men saying, no, it's not acceptable, others also became emboldened to push back. So this really critical process of association is in shifting gender norms and encouraging, encouraging multiple transgressions, encouraging more people to push back because they've seen now that other people are changing. So they become more confident to these incremental encroachments and experiments. Now, is the same thing happening in rural areas? We might expect so. Rural Zambia, very, very poor. So why wouldn't they also want to take advantage of these new opportunities? So I spent, after spending 18 months on the Zambian copper belt, living with low and middle income families, I also went to live in a, a, a very remote, socially isolated, homogenous village in rural Zambia. 
And in this village, women are represented as wives and as mothers, whereas men fish and act as breadwinners. So yes, women farm, women do horticulture, but they're really seen as wives and mothers. And this really affects girls' educations because, because if they only ever see women as wives and mothers, it affects how much they invest in school. It affects their, what, they, they, what they choose to do if they become pregnant. So, for example, I spoke to um, parents of daughters who'd become pregnant and they said, ah, that's it, chat one. That's it. She's over. She's finished. They didn't push for her to go back to school because... They just thought, well, let her get married instead. She's not serious. Only the boys have a sort of economic future because that's what they'd seen. So people's observations of the world around them shape their investment in education, shape what they try to push for and experiment with. And so this rural village was really stuck in a negative feedback loop, not seeing any alternatives. Girls lacked the confidence or the ideas to, to have these different aspirations. And I also interviewed uh, many rural urban migrants. So people who come from the village, uh, fishermen who, who dried out their fish and then came to the cities to trade. And through coming to the city, say for three months, two months at a time to sell their wares, they came to also rethink their gender stereotypes. So I spoke to men who said they used to beat their wives, but no longer did. I spoke to people who came to rethink and challenge their assumptions. So then let me tell you about, I think, one of the most nights of my life. So we were, we were living, this is in the village, no electricity, no running water. And it was this one night that I heard a woman being beaten. And she was screaming, really crying. And, and it just went on and on and on. And every time you just heard her screaming and wailing. And I don't think anyone interrupted. And so later on, I went to see that man. That man told me that he, you know, you know, thought white beating was a bad thing and not, not acceptable. I said, well, you know, did you hear that? He said, ah, yes, but we can't intervene. I said, why not? You don't think it's okay. He said, but here, everyone in the village supports it. So everyone supports it. So I can hardly go against that. I can hardly go against the entire village. So this is very common in the village. You observe this small, isolated, homogenous community, assume everyone complies and supports the status quo, so people lack the, lack the audacity to push back. Whereas in the city, because there's such heterogeneity, because there are multiple encroachments, people know that there'll be someone who they can push back and change and challenge. But that's just not happening in this very socially isolated village. So my big... Takeaway from that uh, piece of comparative work in Zambia is yes, it's about the importance of women's paid work, but also association through the diversity, the heterogeneity of cities, enabling all sorts of people to come together to share their experiences, and then they can collectively contest. And then you have this snowballing process of social change. That was my hypothesis, at least. So I thought, well, listen, how can I test this? How do I know that it's something about cities rather than female employment per se? I thought to test my theory, what I really need is a labor demand shock. I need to examine a rural place holding everything constant where there's just a sudden demand for female labor and see if paid work is enough to catalyze social change or being a rural community, whether there's something absent, something missing that impedes social change. So I thought, right, well, where is a labor demand shock? 
I thought, I know. I'll go to Cambodia, rural Cambodia, where there's been a, a growth in rural garment factories, specifically recruiting women as cheap labor. So there we did this new comparative rural urban study in Cambodia, assisted by Rosie Yi, who's a, a lecturer at the University of Phnom Penh. And I stayed with him, his family, his mother, his 72-year-old mother, who introduced us to everyone in the village. So let me start off with Phnom Penh. Now, First of all, in Cambodia, just like Zambia, there are these huge rural urban differences. You see much bigger gender wage gaps. You see much bigger gender gaps in education. Every indicator, there are bigger gender gaps in rural areas. So why is this? And again, in the, in the, in the urban area, when I, one of the first conversations I had, actually, uh, with a couple of three uh, trainees, flight attendants, they were rural urban migrants. They'd come to Phnom Penh on bursaries, government bursaries. And interestingly, they said to me, women can do men's work. Women, what a man can do, a woman can do. And I heard this over and over. And I was so curious, how again did this similar discourse emerge in Cambodia? What, 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 what had happened? Because, you know, they haven't had worse any economic security, quite the reverse. So actually in urban Cambodia, in Phnom Penh, we have again seen the rising female labor force participation, especially in cities. And that responds to shifting opportunity costs. Two things, one, urban land prices are increasingly high. Families struggle to provide on a single male breadwinner wage. No, no longer, no, they need to buy food, they need to pay for rent. So given those opportunity costs, it becomes advantageous for women to go out to work. Moreover, there is now growing demand for female labor, both in offices, in restaurants, in services, and in manufacturing, both uh, company garments and electronics. So in response to these new economic opportunities, there's rising support for female employment. And that rise in that behavioral change, that widespread behavioral change, now triggers, catalyzes exposure to women role models. So for example, um, to go back to those three trainee flight attendants, they tell me, oh, you know, I saw a woman driving a tuk-tuk. So it's not like a tuk-tuk is their particular aspiration, but all these ideas of flexibility in gender divisions of labor, seeing women demonstrate their equal competence in traditionally Male-dominated domains enables people to start questioning. Uh, let me give you another example. So Cham. Cham was the son of a farmer, a poor farmer in Kandal province. Uh, his, farmer had a, his father had this little barber shop. And he was telling me that before he went to Phnom Penh for his studies, he had these very socially conservative views. So he used to think he was more intelligent. He didn't really listen to what girls said. You know, he presumed they were inferior. What did they know? Even though he went to school, he, he thought they, they knew less than him. But, but in going to the city, in seeing female lecturers, in seeing women having their own businesses, it made him question his assumptions. It made him be much more inquisitive. And so then he sought out new information. He went to NGOs because he was so curious, trying to understand this new world around him. And he met with other people. They went to the cafe together because in urban Phnom Penh, it's very normal for male and female students, or women and men in generally to go to the cafe and gather. And so they shared their experiences. They reflected on what they'd seen. So the, the city seemed to catalyze three kinds of changes. 
One is raising girls' self-esteem, women's self-esteem, seeing they can do it and being proud enough of them. Two, challenging people's stereotypes, recognizing women's equal competence. And I think a third one, really important, shifting people's expectations of what other people will support or censure. So for example, there were these young, young girls, young girls, and it was in seeing people down their street, seeing young girls down their street having homework made them incredibly jealous. So they begged and pleaded with their parents, I want to go to school too. You know, they'd seen others do it. So they thought, ha, this is possible for me. Or there was another woman, a garment worker I interviewed. And in their row of rent houses, they'd see, she'd seen a woman who shared unpaid care work with her husband. He did the washing up, he did the dishes. And she thought, well, yes, of course. You know, we're both working. Why should I have to do all this drudgery? So she felt entitled. She felt emboldened. And so she pushed her, so she asked her husband to do the washing up as well. He said, no, you flatly refused. And so she divorced him. But the point is that uh, across all these different domains, across different classes, women shifted their aspirations and their expectations and started pushing back. And the more that women and men saw these small experiments, these, these encroachments that catalyzes and it emboldens others to push back as well. Okay. But of course, you know, this varies by occupation, this varies by income. You know, a domestic worker who's really working seven days a week, confined to the home, the city does not have so many effects for her, especially when uh, transport is so expensive in Phnom Penh. And of course, there are many massive gender inequalities in Phnom Penh. But I'm just trying to highlight this relative difference, which of course varies with occupation, job, whatever. Okay, now let's go to rural, rural Kandal province and Takao province, where I work. So to begin here, I want to transport you to the village cafe. The village cafe, if you can imagine it, is a dirt sandy floor. A sandy floor with red plastic chairs and a corrugated iron roof overhead. And during the week, um, I think the main conversations really revolve around the big problem of drought. So over the past four years, the rains have been increasingly unreliable. So families may go to Vietnam to buy insecticide, to buy fertilizer, they invest, they, they, they plow their fields, they plant the seeds, but then the rains are late. The rains don't come. So the mites come and gob it all up. So farmers have ended up horribly, horribly indebted as a result of climate breakdown. And so as a result, some families just aren't farming anymore. So these problems, these community problems, they discuss in the village cafe. They work out what to do. They share ideas. They gain knowledge from each other. And what they've decided to do is invest in a generator so they can pump water from the rivers, from the tributary, um, and, and fertilize their, uh, uh, and grow their crops. It's also in the village cafe that people become increasingly emboldened about the possibility of opposition politics. So Hun Sen, very authoritarian regime. But in the village with Radio Free Asia, with Facebook, people are increasingly seeing alternatives. They recognize the opposition politics and they start organizing, they start talking, they start becoming emboldened about challenging Hun Sen. But all this happens within the village cafe. That's where people are solving problems. That's where people are gaining interest in opposition politics. Gaining knowledge. Now, this question. 
Who goes to the village cafe? Who has the entitlement of leisure? Who's allowed to associate in this public space? The only public space really for, for prolonged discussions. Men, only men can go to the village cafe. And there is no alternative public space for women. It just wouldn't be socially acceptable, right? Women might go to the market quickly, talk briefly, but then hurry home because they have a huge volume of care work and to neglect that would be seen uh, well, perhaps promiscuous. So the point is that men become, men gain knowledge in this public space and they become revered and regarded as knowledgeable. So of course it's only natural that they represent the family at community events or in community politics. So it's through male only association really shapes the gender inequality. So even though women are working in the fields, they're doing that drudgery and it's unrecognized. Governance remains male-dominated. And when I spoke to people in Kandal village, in Kandal villages, very few people contested that arrangement because men were seen as more knowledgeable. I mean, there are many, many sayings, you know, women would talk about themselves, I'm like a frog in a well which is a common saying across East Asia and Southeast Asia. And people refer to men as more knowledgeable. Women are short-legged. Women only move around the kitchen, whereas men are long-legged. They travel much further, they know much more. So we have this negative feedback loop that gender inequalities persist, they're unchallenged. Now, now what happens with the rise of rural garment factories? Okay, well, some women I spoke to Taught, so I went, um, I interviewed garment workers, so I would go and join them for breakfast every morning, 6 a.m. And again, at 11.30, we would chat together, talk together over little bowls of rice. And, and they would tell me how garment work had raised their self-esteem. And they had great pride in being able to give some money to their families, especially in this context of climate breakdown, especially now that factory work was so much more important to household livelihoods. So women felt proud of what they were doing. They were pleased to do it and pleased to give that money to their families. But the vast majority felt unappreciated, unrecognized, like no one recognized their work and it didn't really enable them to contest domestic relationships. And it certainly didn't enable them to to challenge community governance or see alternatives because they lack access to that, to that public sphere of association. So rural, just having their own income without that association, without those public spaces to collectively contest and challenge and be emboldened really didn't change gender relations at all. I mean, there was some variety here with different occupations. So for example, rural traders rural traders traveling huge differences and then gathering in small rural markets. Yes, they gained a little bit more association. But the vast majority, the, the factory workers, they didn't experience that at all. So my takeaway, my takeaway from both Zambia and Cambodia is that we see what's catalyzing progress towards gender equality is one, these shifting opportunity costs, whether it's worsening economic security in Zambia or rising, or rising opportunities in Cambodia. It's that shifting opportunity costs makes families see women's work as advantageous. Then you have the big 
behavioral change. And through seeing and through exposure to those role models, those women plumbers, those women electricians, women driving the tuk-tuk, then people come to challenge, to think differently, to, to raise their aspirations. But the crucial process and the process that seems unique to cities is association. The diversity, the heterogeneity of being able to gather together share experiences of the woman with uh, who'd been looking after her HIV AIDS uh, often single-handedly. And through that, you, you unleash these, this emboldened process, this snowballing process of social change. So that's my, my minor addition to recognize paid work and association is equally critical. Thank you. Wow. I am... I'm kind of spinning. I don't know if everyone else is, but I'm definitely spinning. That was a performance. It was brilliant. It was absolutely brilliant, Alice. Uh, we're getting messages saying that it, it, it's brilliant. So uh, without further ado, I'm not going to abuse my moderator's privilege. I uh, will hand it over to Meski, who is our uh, practice manager, East Africa, and um, comes with a lot of experience both on the social side as well as on the urban side and with a deep knowledge of uh, gender issues and norms across various cultures. So let me um, let me hand it over to Meski. Meski, it's over to you. And I'm going to um, just turn off my video just because to say, but Alice, you should keep yours on. I will remain. I have to share my country's enthusiasm and um, I'm also wowed by the presentation. It was so inspiring to uh, hear you share the lived experiences um, of both you know, women and men in Zambia and, uh, and Cambodia. It's really inspiring to see this comparative lived experience come to life in the way that you have articulated it. I found um, you know, both your your presentation and also reading the articles um, was super super inspiring. They're very insightful. I learned a lot, and most of all, they're enjoyable to read again because of you know your ability to bring to life um, these uh, personal uh, experiences, which is something that we don't often get in our sort of dry bank reports. The other thing I, I appreciated is that, um, as you've noted in uh, in the report and in, in your articles, is that we've done quite a lot of analysis on, especially on African cities, and we've tended to focus on the infrastructure, you know, deficits and associated with those constraints on also the institutional um, uh, constraints around governance and municipal finance, etc. Those uh, narratives, I think, in a way, have not allowed us to look at the social um, impact of urbanization and how that has uh, transformative capacities in terms of the ways in which uh, women especially are able to find new new opportunities. So I found that uh, really, um, really insightful. So um, reading it though, I was, um, I mean, a couple of things that jumped at me. You know, I first read the Zambia article and I kept thinking, okay, I'm sure um, the uh, new kinds of employment opportunities, especially like around industrial, um, you know, parks that we've seen the growth of, especially like in China, that was a huge contributor to both the processes of urbanization, but also bringing about 
economic opportunity for the poor in rural areas. And we're seeing a very similar dynamic in several countries in, in Africa where you're perceiving a very rapid economic growth. Like in Ethiopia, for instance, there's lots of industrial parks um, and many of the employees are actually women. And you're starting to see this shift in communities um, and social perception etc. But what I appreciated was that by actually placing it in the rural area, giving us that example from Cambodia, we're able to see actually it's locational and that there is a very big difference in the way in which even when women are faced with economic opportunities in rural areas, the gender equity changes in perception are actually location based. So that was interesting. Now, a few questions for you to help launch this conversation. One is, do you see that uh, because there are very close interactions also between rural and urban areas, it's not like people move to urban areas and they don't have any connections with their rural uh, places of origin. So is there an impact on migration to urban areas because of a perception of better gendered um, opportunities. The second question is, um, is what you're documenting not just a process of massive social transformation that we see due to urbanization? Because if you look at both Zambia, which is now about 44% urbanized, but actually um, the, over the past 10 years, we've seen a very dramatic rate of urbanization. And the same thing in Cambodia, it's not as urbanized, like 25% or something. Um, but it is a, like you're capturing a moment of deep social transformation. So, of course, you know, gender is just a part of that. So are you saying anything different? Are you, and if you try to apply the same type of research in the Middle East or in Latin America, where urbanization rates are stable and the process has actually, you know, um, stabilized over the last, you know, 20 years or so, are you going to see the same type of uh, perceptions and transformations in people's world views. And then related to isn't what you're just, you know, very consistent with what Ed Glacier had said in Triumph of the, of the city that basically, yeah. you know, yes. you yes. Yes. people yes. together in one place. And so, so, so what is different about your, your claims or is it just kind of taking Nothing, his, nothing. It's a footnote. Uh, yeah. Okay. All right. <laughs> <laughs> and then maybe the final question is like, um, you know, we are constantly trying to think about how is it that in our policy engagements and our operations, we're always trying to endeavor to bring in um, greater gender equity, both in terms of access to resources and greater voice, um, greater engagement. So there are there any kernels of knowledge that we can extract from what you're saying, or are you just describing um, you know, something that's just happening or implications that we draw from this or how can we leverage this change um, to have deeper levels of equity, but in terms of, you know, access to resources, in terms of, say, for example, land rights are a huge issue um, everywhere and women continually have less access to, uh, to, to land rights. Um, legal rights and, and other areas as well in terms of you know including pay and and, and and so forth so what is it that we can do 
to leverage our both policy engagement and our operations to um, to kind of build on what you have found. Okay, so those are awesome questions. Um, the first of all, do women go to urban areas because they see new economic, more liberal, permissive opportunities? Yes, let me give an example. Uh, in West Africa, we know that divorced women or women who've been accused of witches or women who want to uh, uh, escape from female genital mutilation, they might often escape to cities. So women without the support of rural kin, women who've transgressed those norms, yes, they may go to cities. And I think that raises a larger methodological problem for those who want to study this is how do we know that the more liberal egalitarian cities aren't just a, a compositional thing, that more liberal, more egalitarian, more progressive people go to cities. Um, <clears throat> and that's specifically why I interviewed rural urban migrants. So people like Chan, the, the young boy who came to Phnom Penh for a scholarship, he can tell me that back in the village, he used to be much more conservative. He used to think women were less, but through coming through cities. So it was a really important, so you're totally right, but because of that possibility, it was really important for me to do these life history interviews. Um, so that I could see that yes, the city did have an effect on those that chose to come. Your second question is, do we see different effects of urbanization in different parts of the world? I think the extent to which the urban is catalytic certainly varies. But even in very conservative, traditional places, we still see these rural urban differences. So let me give you an example, the example of India. In India, when a family, in rural India, when a family becomes more wealthy, they gain social status by women withdrawing from the labor force. And so a more, a more high income uh, rural families tend to have low female participation, whereas in urban areas where people in Mumbai are more exposed to women working in call centers or women uh, gaining prestige and status through employment, then uh, family wealth makes less difference on whether women work or not. So I think across the world, we tend to see this plays out that regardless of the level of urbanization, urban areas tend to be more progressive. But that, that connection doesn't hold automatically. Because if you went to New York or London in the 1950s or Zambia in the 1950s, then you would have the male breadwinner, female household model. It's that what I'm saying is that, yes, the urban can catalyze these broader changes, but it's in conjunction with economic changes. And that's really important. So yes, we have this global trend, this trans, this trans historical trend, but it applies under certain conditions. Now, your third point is the most challenging one. Do I? Is there anything useful? Does my research have anything useful for you? I mean, a lot of people have have seen this work on association and they thought, okay, what we need is, is more safe spaces for girls. So they set up like a room for girls to sit in and share their experiences. And I've been to a lot of those in Zambia um, because that's part of sort of uh, gender sensitization efforts. And really I was totally underwhelmed because in reality, it's just 60 girls crammed into a room with really poor facilitation. So, you know, unless it's a bespoke, very expensive, very time intensive, resource intensive study, a lot of these girls only safe spaces trying to replicate all the stuff that I've observed that's happening organically in cities were kind of underwhelming and ineffective. But I think the important point is how can we catalyze more economic opportunities for women and these spaces of association? 
you know, I'm not saying the World Bank can set up and run a bunch of cafes, but but recognizing that that's important. So I don't know what the World Bank can do, but if it was a way of enabling girls to have more access to cafes in the way they do in urban Phnom Penh, um, I think that's great. Um, but I'd be really keen to listen to people at the bank today to to try to draw that connection between my sort of observation of the world at large and what you, you the tools at your disposal. I'd be really keen to hear that link. But thank you for those questions. They were great. So what we've done, what I've done is basically asked people to put their questions in the chat box and Michelle just sent a, a message around. Um, I do know that Karen is not, um, does not appreciate being sort of the ceremonial closing remark person. And I'm 100% I'm sure she has a ton to say. Um, but before um, I hand it to, to Karen, what I'm going to do is, I, I just wanted to not necessarily take issue with, but just wanted to comment on a couple of things that you said. One that, um, you know, sometimes what's happening when people discover norms is that they move over, over onto the other side and then everything is about norms, which is clearly not the case. I mean, there, there is a structural framework on the basis of which norms thrive and survive. Right. And I think to be able to make that distinction, which is not an easy one to make, it's really important because we see a lot of times people saying, well, it's, of course, it's all about norms. No, it's not all about norms. Um, so that's that's one thing that I, I was hoping that, you know, we would be able to clarify a little. Second, that they are mutable, as you can as you as you've shown. Um, and third, I mean, uh, on the issue of female labor force participation, I have to I do have to kind of, you know, do a little bit of a, a nitpicking there. Oh, correctly, as, yes. Yeah. As far as India is concerned, in fact, female labor force participation in urban areas has gone down over time, has never been above 25 percent. And despite the fact that that norms are a lot more liberal, in fact, within families, norms tend to persist in much the same way as they do in in rural areas. So it's not necessarily again, it's not just about the norms in India. It's much more about the demand for female labor that in a sense embodies those norms. So the labor market internalizes the norms and acts like a family almost if you i mean carl polani is a is a great uh, great great person to to cite on that so yeah so i'm just wanted to and nothing I, I couldn't resist it and so no 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 sorry i wasn't clear i wasn't clear so rural female employment is much higher than urban it's about double in india but what i was trying to say is as families get wealthier in rural india then women are more likely to withdraw from the labor force that was my only point. Sorry, I wasn't clear. But I think the norms point, that, okay, so social norms is something that I'm obsessed with. And what I try to do in this talk is to unpack what we mean by norms. Because people often just refer to norms as like clouds floating around. But what I like to do is to do something terribly unfashionable and have this methodological individualist approach to norms. And what I'm trying to say is let's understand that it's people's beliefs and their desires. So we can distinguish between people's internalized ideologies, what they think is right and wrong, what they think men and women are capable of, and also their expectations, their norm perceptions of what they think other people will believe or support. 
And I think in the village, you may have some people who question their internalized gender stereotypes, some people who are privately critical, but that doesn't catalyze this wider change if they remain pessimistic about wider support. So to give the example of the man who no longer beats his wife, but still doesn't intervene because he's pessimistic about what others can do. So, so my contribution to the literature here on social norms is to say, Take a methodological individualist approach and think about the individual's beliefs and desires, because that's what shapes their, their behavior. So we can distinguish between internalized ideologies and their expectations. And it's not enough to do gender sensitization saying men and women have equal rights or women can do this stuff, trying to change people's internalized ideologies if they don't actually see and observe people upholding that in real life. Because unless they see widespread behavioral change, they may be pessimistic, and so they won't even try to push back. Thank you, Alice. I think this is a conversation we could we could have for a very long time, and you've been doing this for for years. Uh, but let me hand over to Karen because we have about we have about ten minutes, and I'll ask Karen to make a few remarks uh, and then open it up for uh, for questions or ask Michelle. Actually, I won't open it up after Karen uh, makes her remarks. I'm going to ask uh, Michelle to read out the questions that are in the chat box. Uh, thanks, Mayatri. Thanks, Alice. I really enjoyed this, and I really liked reading your uh, paper. Yeah, I, I'm an economist, but I love qualitative work. And I think economists need to do more of it. Let me start with your last point because I think it's really interesting. Um, I, I think um, a methodological individualistic approach to norms as you described it is actually a really important way to go in research. And you're probably aware of the paper in Saudi Arabia uh, that was done by colleagues of ours um, uh, at JPAL that looked at, at norms, uh, looked at a sample of men um, in terms of norms about female labor force participation and while men privately said that they had no issues with women working, uh, they were really concerned about what other men thought about that and concerned that if, while they had no private issues, they would be judged harshly if women went into the labor force. And one of the things that happened as a result of that paper was actually an intervention around norms change that tried to take advantage of what uh, men thought other men um, would think. And, uh, that intervention actually did result in increased female labor force participation that lasted actually uh, months after the uh, intervention. So that goes to my first point, which is I think it really is important to think about all kinds of behavioral approaches to norms change and not just let, you know, the, the organic growth of cities and all that acquires. And in that respect, I also think that um, there's some really interesting things to be thinking about uh, because I don't think that urban areas and rural, rural areas, I agree with Meski, really there is a lot of interaction, um, not only in terms of migration, but also in terms of social media. And I think the media images and the social media, the edutainment approaches, particularly those directed to norms change, can be really, really helpful as an intervention uh, going forward. But I also have a few other things that I, I was struck by in terms of um, what you had to say. And, I, you know, and go, I also have, was an early reader of Ed's, Ed Glazer's work and things. I think there's some other things that are important to bring out about cities. And I do think it's about density. I do think it's about the fact um, of agglomeration effects. And I think probably in terms of norms, there's something about anonymity there that you don't necessarily have in a rural village that uh, is enabling or gives permission to certain things. 
And therefore, um, to some extent, you know, because of the anonymity, it's also, it could be also less in an, in an urban environment about what others think of you, because it is the people that you're closest to, except maybe your immediate uh, people that you're cohabiting with and so forth, may not see what, what, what you're doing. So I, I think there's some features there that are important. The other thing I wanted to say, and I, this goes back to Admayatri and I did some early work together many years ago. I think the real critical thing is really about um, uh, female uh, labor market participation. But the, the issue is, what is it? It's not just female labor force participation. It's the type of employment, paid employment, not unpaid work, the type of employment that really matters. And I think that, you know, if you're talking about home-based work, it's really different than work in a factory. Obviously, you have to think about the occupational skill set there. And I think that there, you know, home-based work, probably, you know, the correlations between attitudes and home-based work may be very, you know, for those who are in home-based work, may be very different than, as you know, in a garment factory. And my final comment is, I think this is a really great start, but I am totally interested in seeing this work be extended to other contexts. I want to see Latin America. I want to where it, there are countries like, um, you know, that are basically fully, as Messi noted, you know, urban, peri-urban, these kinds of things in terms of where, you know, although there's still an agricultural sector and there's still niches for non-traditional agriculture, et cetera, I want to see other contexts represented. And I think actually historically, a historical analysis for this is really important. A country like Bangladesh uh, should be in this mix or a country like uh, some of the uh, countries with early free trade zones, Mexico or some of the uh, Caribbean countries would be really interesting diversity to add. So let me stop there. Karen, thank you so much. Yes, yes, I agree with everything you said and you reminded me to make more points. So let me come back to the Glazer point. Yes, I'm totally with you that it's about, I think another thing is these intersecting migration channels, you know, people coming from all sorts of different places with different backgrounds and sharing their experiences. Because what Glazer says about the triumph of the city with creativity and innovation and sharing ideas, catalyzing productivity or economic productivity, I'm making the exact same argument, but just for gender change. So it's just the duplicative glazer. So that it's very, and actually there's a lot of work in economic geography about this, about the connection. So it's very, very similar. My PhD was in geography, so I'm all with that. Okay, yes, you, you made the point about edutainment, and this is what I should have said. I totally agree. You know, a fat, one, I think one thing that would be fat, I think, so for example, I talk about the cities in enabling exposure, but one thing that's rarely seen because it's so often behind closed doors is men sharing care work. So wouldn't it be wonderful if there was a soap opera that people are watching anyway, like a very popular soap opera that had a character where men are sharing the care work? Because then people would see that it was normal, socially acceptable for men to be sharing this. It would be fantastic if the World Bank could support Nollywood films with showing those kinds of things. So not we just are, to be doing a one-off series. Sorry? We are. We're doing oh, that. We're doing, um, that in Nigeria and we're doing it in India. Oh, right. Fabulous. Well, yeah, I'm a huge fan of I'm, I'm a huge fan of all that work on soap operas and, you know, that paper in Brazil where they have soap operas and the divorce skyrockets. I love it. I love it. Yeah, I think the best, you know, the 
doing a sensitization at a school is old hat and doesn't uh, take advantages of a common means of scale when people can watch on their smartphones. So I'm all for edutainment and using existing series that people will watch. I think that's the best thing in the world and I'm totally in support of it. Yes, edutainment, yes, laser. Now, anonymity, that's an interesting question. And this was the big theory of you know, the 1920s that the urban in, um, the cities enabled the urban flaneur where they weren't being monitored. I think that could explain some behavioral changes. So for example, in a city, a young girl is more able to get contraceptives because the health worker doesn't know her mother. Yes, I'm totally with you there. Whereas in the village, you know, you go to the, the nurse, the health worker who's within an hour's walk and you know she's friends with your mother. So it's immediately going to get back. Totally with you there. Urban anonymity matters in explaining behavioral differences. What I think it doesn't account for is differences in beliefs. That is why a father is more likely to invest in his daughter's education, for example. That isn't about anonymity, as you mentioned, within the immediate family. So there are some things that the urban gets you with anonymity, some things it doesn't. It's certainly part of the mix. Um, paid work in the public sphere, yes, I'm totally with you. Like Nyla Kabir's work, Kozler's work, you know, a woman who's earning money. But even, you know, very topical in the UK this week, Nyla Kabir has a wonderful book on women, uh, Bangladeshi, British Bangladeshi women earning money. Jews. Sorry? Power to it's called Power yes. to Choose. One of my favorite books. One of my favorite books. She earns money, but the men are controlling the income. And so she's not seeing alternatives. She's not questioning things. She's just doing additional work and people are profiting from it. One of my favorite books in the world. Um, more work on this, testing my theory and whether Zambia and Cambodia can hold up more broadly or what's happening elsewhere. Yes, I would love that. Yes, I would love more subnational analysis. Um, and it doesn't necessarily need to be qualitative. It could be quantitative, multi-level studies. I think there are loads of possibilities for testing this in different places, and that would be fantastic. So everything you said, Karen, I totally agree. Okay. Uh, thank you so much, Alice. So we actually are uh, almost out of time, but uh, we're going to extend it a little bit, if that's okay. Uh, because I think a few people didn't realize that the time had changed and joined a little later, which is why we initially didn't have as much of an attendance. But I, I think Mega really, really wants to make uh, uh, an intervention, so I'm going to let her. And then we have a couple of questions uh, from Dan and, and Diksha in the chat box. So uh, Michelle will read those out. So Mega, over to you. So Alice, let's wait for the three and then you answer all three together, okay? Mega. Okay, thank you so much, Maitri. And Alice, so nice to have you on the screen. Um, I didn't have a time to, I didn't have an opportunity to chat with you the last time you were at the bank. Um, so, you know, hopefully next time we can have you in person. So, although I'm an urban economist in the bank, I'm actually going to question what part of your results actually have to do with the city itself. And I'm wondering, because I know you've done a lot of work in East Asia that you've written about online as well. Is that what part of this is about entry into of women into the into the labor force versus what part of it is women entering the labor force in cities? So, for example, both the countries that you've looked at um, in Zambia and in Cambodia, these are countries which have fairly low female participation in the labor force. Now, if you were to look at a country like Vietnam or other communist countries where you already had a lot of women working in the labor force already. Um, would that, what part of them working in cities would have a, a nominal effect or a marginal effect 
on the changes that you're looking at and would it be possible or you know would it be possible to analyze whether it's through qualitative or quantitative means doing that kind of work in in countries where um historically women have been working in the labor force and to what extent cities are changing those norms even further thanks Shmeka, um since there is only there are only two other uh, comments and questions Dikta, would you like to uh, just um, have yours out there as well and then maybe dan Diksha, are you there? Hello? Okay, sure. And in with that opportunity, let me just turn my video on as well. Hi. So um, thanks a lot, Alice. It's It's been a pleasure listening to you. So my question is uh, very um, close to Mega's question, actually. I was wondering if you could unpack um, a little bit more about, you know, and I think Karen also got to uh, this answer to a certain extent because she spoke about anonymity and, you know, the other channels of impact about what it is about a city um, that leads to this uh, change in gender relations. But where I am in Indonesia, there is, of course, rapid urbanization, but um, there is also this movement of what, what is known as re-domestification of women, um, which has a lot to do with national level factors. So I was wondering if you could speak a little bit more about, about what it is about the city itself. Um, so that, that's my question. Thanks. Thank you. <coughs> the last one, Alice. Uh, Dan? Okay. Um, in that case, uh, oh, we have Eric Caldwell, who Eric Johnson, who has uh, who's talking about qualitative work on female labor force participation in Cambodia, and um, he says that one thing we found was both men and women in urban and rural areas still consider female physical attractiveness to be a key determinant of the types of jobs and job track women and the jobs and the track that women can pursue. Urban development in Phnom Penh doesn't seem to be helping. So how do how can these perceptions be shifted? Um, I think that is it um, from among the questions and comments. Let's uh, Alice hear from you. Okay, question. So do cities make a difference when female employment is already high? Let me give the examples of Russia and China. So in Russia, rural gender relations have historically been very patriarchal. The men are in control of community governance, even though women are working, even though women are toiling in the fields. But coming to urban areas has still nevertheless been important in enabling the formation of nuclear families, uh, where women have usually more capacity to contest things, and women gaining esteem, in, gaining esteem and seeing alternatives. And we see the same things in, in China. So under communism, you had high female employment in rural China, but you see a big, big effect of people coming to cities coming to cities, seeing alternatives. And for me, when I read these ethnographies from different parts of the world, also I can give the example of Latin America. Uh, women come uh, to cities in Latin America through rural urban migration and they come to see alternatives. Or they might gather in liberation theology churches. Or they might organize soup kitchens and street kitchens and, and see other women and start talking and start questioning and start seeing alternatives. So I think... To me, across the world, we see this process of association. Oh, you can't hear me. Paula says they can't hear me. Can other people hear me? Yes, we hear you. Okay, fine. I will proceed. So I, th I think the crucial point of cities is, is, is what Karen said, is this 
intersecting migration channels, these diverse people coming together with different backgrounds, different ways of doing things, and then listening and sharing experiences and challenging and questioning things. And you have this through seeing these these new ideas, then that can cause this snowballing process, just as what you might find with urban innovation, which Glazer has talked about. Um, oh, the point about attractiveness. I think that's a really good point that cities don't necessarily make everything better. For example, Kathy McElwain has highlighted huge problems of sexual harassment in cities, huge problems of gender-based violence in cities. And yes, there are standards of female attractiveness. So there are many things that just being in a city isn't going to fix. You know, if women, if there's uh, Eve teasing, Eve teasing in South Asia, then that will persist in cities. It may even be it may strengthen. So I'm not saying that cities will fix everything. There are certain things they may be able to change. That it depends on the conversations and the protests that are happening in there. So I think let me continue with the India example of a way in which cities can be catalytic. So after the horrific events in 2012, many men rushed to the streets in protest and they demonstrated their solidarity and support. And through seeing those mass of people come out after the gang rape case, made many people feel emboldened that they had that social support from peers. So, but that was, that's a very recent thing and it's a nascent thing and it's not entirely fully formed. Or again, in South Korea, uh, there have been huge protests around uh, Me Too and a famous female prosecutor came out and came forward. So these, these don't always happen. They don't happen necessarily. So different domains of gender relations may change and others won't. It really depends on what people on the ground are doing and contesting and how they associate with others. Uh, thank you, Alice. What about uh, the question from, uh, from Diksha uh, on, on re-domestification? Oh, yes, on Indili. I think this is totally true that the urban is not inevitably catalytic. And if you have a resurgence of piety, for example, in urban areas. And if that process of social change is urban and is happening and predominates in urban areas, then yes. So I think this I think that's a great example of how the urban is not inevitably egalitarian. There are many different forces and processes that may happen that may interrupt that. So yes, if you have a resurgence of piety, if people think that they can show their religious faith through domestic uh, through women staying back home, then yes. Um, those pro the, you won't see that progress towards gender equality. I think that's a really nice counter. Thank you, Diksha. Right. I think we are at the end of it, but I can't resist saying it's uh, not probably not just the, a resurgence of piety. There's often also uh, both um, intrafamilial and community level uh, gender competition across men and women. And, and it, there are structural reasons because of both political and structural reasons because of which uh, there's, a, there's a scale back of gender equality. It's, it's a backlash essentially. And, and that backlash is due to a number of different reasons. So not necessarily just a resurgence of piety, but a number of other factors that range from both competition for jobs as well as competitions for, for uh, you know, marks in schools, et cetera, that require women to basically stay home or that's that's the resurgence in a sense. Um, so anyway, we could have this conversation, but uh, we are well over our time and um, Besky had to leave and um, I guess some others also. So um, Alice, thank you so much. I think people are still kind of holding on to their chairs. I know you're standing 
uh, and you're walking around on your on on the stage of yours but the rest of us are hanging on to our chairs and um and we're um we're kind of trying to trying to get our heads around what just happened um so thanks to karen thanks to meski thank you for ev to everyone for joining um also um just wanted to, to again remind you that there was a, a, a comment on uh, on some work done on uh, on on Nompen that eric pointed out and and we can we can share that with you um but for everyone else this is a recording and it's going to be posted online um so please look at our website michelle just sent you sent the link to it and thanks to michelle and to the rest of the gender and inclusion team within our global practice thanks alice Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for having me.